0: Welcome to the Age of Trust, a special podcast series brought to you by Verizon that explores how we are securing our future for the fourth industrial revolution. With knowledge becoming critical to Australia's international economic strength, this podcast series explores themes that challenge the productivity of knowledge workers with secure and reliable communications. We discover the explosion in remote working and connectivity, and how organisations will need to manage, secure, protect and organise intangible assets such as systems, processes, IP, data, personal information, corporate information and even competitive knowledge. Get ready for the new Age of Trust by Verizon.
1: Welcome to the Age of Trust podcast. Today, we're talking about the nature of trust in the Australian-US relationship. That trust encompasses everything from our business relationship to the close government relationships that is decades and generations old. There's a lot that's happened in the last 24 months, whether it's about technology with 5G and IoT, whether it's about supply chains, there's also been a change of government in the US. Today, I'd like to introduce April Parmalee, who's the CEO of the American Chamber of Commerce in Australia, commonly known as AmCham the largest and most influential international business organisation that provides assistance to the US and Australian companies by promoting trade, commerce and investment. Also joining me for this discussion is MJ Salia, who's General Counsel at Verizon. MJ is overall responsible for ensuring Verizon's products are delivered in a compliant fashion in non-US countries, and the role provides feedback to Verizon's development process to ensure coherent and efficient product development that meets international conditions. So MJ, your role is a global role based in Australia for a US company. So there's a lot to talk about there, but I'd like to start, if I could, April, by asking you a little bit about the role of AmCham And what you've seen the discussion looking like when it comes to business and government over the last 12 and 24 months, which has been such an important time for the relationship.
2: Thanks, Corey. Thanks for having me on today to talk about the US-Australia trade relationship. It is a very, very important relationship for Australia because the United States is by far the largest investor in Australia. Australia typically has about a 4% gap between what it produces and what it invests. And we need that $56 billion to come from overseas. That comes mostly from the United States. 27% of all the FDI into Australia comes from the United States. That's about a trillion dollars inflow, almost $2 trillion in the two-way trade investment relationship. The next biggest investor is the UK at about half of what the US invests, all the way down to China, which is number 10 in terms of investment into Australia. So that's why the U.S. is so important to the Australian economy. We recently did a paper that calculated the impact of U.S. investment on the Australian economy, and it was calculated that 7% of the Australian economy is a result of American trade and investment here. So that's roughly equivalent to the mining sector, which all Australians understand and know how important that is. So keeping those two-way trade investment ties and flows going is really essential to Australia maintaining or increasing its productivity and its place in the world. We've moved up in world rankings recently. You were saying the past 12 to 24 months. So you're really looking at, at the COVID period. And Australia has the 55th biggest economy. The 55th biggest population, the 14th or 13th biggest economy, and the fourth biggest pool of capital because of our compulsory superannuation, which has just gone up another half a percent last week. So, Australia plays on the world stage in a way that many Australians don't realize. Yes, we're a mid sized country in terms of our 25, 26 million population, but our economy is now stronger than Spain it's just behind Russia. It's overtaken Brazil, which has 211 million people. So the Australian economy is very strong. And that is based on being able to invest in our people and our country with that additional trusted income from the United States.
1: MJ, oh, sorry, MJ, you were going to say?
3: Yeah, I was just going to say, April, they're really interesting stats you've got there. I'm just wondering, though, you can't get away from talking about COVID and the impact it's had on all of our lives and all of our businesses. And of course, one of the things that we saw was the disruption of supply chains, especially to somewhere like Australia that is so remote from its trading partners. And I'm just wondering whether you had any views. Uh, Countries started to look inwards to see how they could self-sustain. And, you know, just a small example was Australia upping the production of toilet paper in the early stages of the pandemic, you know, following rush sales on that. But I'm just wondering if you feel like that sort of inward look to self-sufficiency, although it's never going to really be achievable, is going to have any impact on the relationship between Australia and the U.S.?
2: That's a great point, MJ. From the toilet paper to the hand sanitizer, you know, the gin and alcohol companies that pivoted to be able to make hand sanitizer for us. Companies like Stryker that changed from making hospital beds to making ventilators when we thought there'd be a lot of people in ICU. It was really exciting and innovative to see the ways that companies pivoted when the country needed them. And I think that's a big vote of confidence that we can all have in our innovative entrepreneurs in Australia and the United States and other countries did it as well. And I'm just commenting on the countries I'm involved with. But in the long run, that's not sustainable. That's why global trade exists, because it's not practical for any one country to make everything that it needs itself. And so the question of nationalism expands naturally to nearshoring. If you're in the United States and you're worried about supply chains, obviously that long tail coming from the other side of the world is a concern. If shipping lanes, remember when that one big tanker got stuck in the CIS canal and everything got backlogged for a week, the long supply chains are a problem, as well as instability in other countries where critical things are being produced for your own supply chains. So what AmCham is looking at is not only onshoring, or even near-shoring, which for the United States would be Canada and Mexico. But what we're looking at is ally-shoring. Looking to countries, for example, the Five Eyes countries, Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, and Australia, who share intelligence, who trust each other, who have each other's backs in the defense and intelligence community, are those countries that could band together to create secure supply chains, regardless of where they are? I mean, it does really cover the world, that five eyes grouping. Or is there a group such as the Quad, which is the United States, Australia, India, and Japan? Are those the countries that we want to rely on for safe and secure shipments between our countries? But I think it is important to look at ally-shoring versus onshoring or even near-shoring.
3: Yeah, so I agree. I mean, I think that extraordinary times produce extraordinary results, but extraordinary times aren't really about, you know, business as usual. And I guess that once, you know, as important as it is, and it was great to see that everybody had that capability to innovate in that way. Once you really accept that Australia, looking from our perspective right now, you know, really doesn't have the skills or capability to do everything itself, then obviously it's got to look to who it wants to help to be that trusted partner. And you can't fight history, you can't fight you know, like values and shared minds and obviously the US pops onto the radar pretty quickly once you start thinking about that trusted partner.
1: Can I add something just that I guess goes to both of the points that you've both made? When you talk about those partnerships and where you can add value, critical minerals seems to be one that comes up very regularly and when you are outlining some of those sort of economic points at the beginning April you were talking about the size of the Australian economy but there's often questions about exactly how complex that economy is so when we are talking about these sort of strategic alliances I think critical minerals and the ability to process them and derive value from them particularly when you're thinking about like ESG and the values and the sustainability about deriving the value from these critical minerals is that a hot topic right now and where are those conversations because they are particularly fascinating to me Yeah, I think just like 5G wasn't on people's
2: radar for a while, and then we all started waking up and realizing what it meant and what the IoT would mean for all of us, critical minerals has also Mm -hmm. been in the background for a long time, and people are starting to wake up to it now. Just because of the way the earth was created, a lot of the rare earths and critical minerals that we use today are found in Russia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and China and those are not places where we can be sure of supply. So in order to try and ensure that we have adequate supplies of these rare earths, which actually aren't that rare, they're quite abundant, but it's just hard to find them in quantities that are economical to process easily. So finding these rare earths and processing them in countries where we can be sure that we won't be held up if trade wars break out, or even a hot war with military involvement is really important. There's a small company that's a member of Amchem called Gerbois Mining out of Australia. They have just gotten a hundred million dollar bond to set up the first and only cobalt mine in Idaho. So the United States is going to have its own cobalt. There's also a company here in Australia called Linus that has an agreement with the Department of Defense, and they're setting up in Texas. So Australia we're really good at holes and homes. You know, that's what our economy is based on right now, digging things up out of the ground. And as you referenced, Corey, the Harvard study has pointed out the Australian economy is dumb and getting dumber, meaning that we don't add a lot of value to our exports. We have a lot of raw materials that we export and That's been very beneficial for the Australian economy up until now, but we need to start thinking about the future and creating opportunities for the United States and Australia to partner on critical minerals extraction and processing so that we can have the computer chips that we need, so that we can build the cars we need, so we can have the weapons that are needing to be produced. So many things depend on these kinds of minerals like cobalt, copper, lithium, titanium powder, all sorts of things that we can and should be working together on.
3: Um, yeah, and when you talk about the critical minerals, of course, you can't really, I mean, apart from just the bare economic realities of it, you can't go past the society, you know, the moral kind of ethic questions behind sourcing minerals from the companies, and as you mentioned, the Democratic Republic of Congo, etc., that, you know, where the funding goes back to authoritarian groups and militia that cause all sorts of human havoc. So, I think that Verizon, where I work and, and obviously many American, well, companies around the world with corporate social responsibility plans will all have policies on this in their supply chain documents to try and, as far as they can, influence the scenario, not source critical minerals from those sorts of locations. So,
2: MJ, that's a great point. You know, I, I'm talking about disruption that would be caused by by trade wars or military intervention. But you're absolutely right. The DRC, Russia, and China are all places that have been singled out by Human Rights Watch and other organizations as having severe human rights issues in their countries. And that flows into the supply chain. And that's going to be more and more of an issue for companies that are trying to be not only sustainable and green and good for the environment, but also in terms of human rights abuses. So I I think that's a very good point.
3: And of course, that's all of the big companies right now. I think you're seeing, I'm not saying government failures, but I'm certainly thinking that the corporates right now are stepping much more into the fray of the social responsibility and human rights. And many, I guess, like Verizon, are making it a core pillar of their functioning in going forward. So it, it is a really hot topic right now.
2: That's what we see with the Edelman Trust Barometer that comes out each year 75% of Australians. Trust their employer right now. That's the highest level of trust of any institution. They trust their specific employer more than they trust business in general, way more than they trust government, more than they trust their church or anybody else. It's your employer who has been keeping you safe, who's been giving you information, who's been keeping you on the path through this pandemic. So, hand in hand with that, there is the expectation by your staff and your customers, your, your shareholders, your stakeholders in general, that you will do the right thing. And again, the Edelman Trust Barometer shows that Australian consumers expect companies and CEOs in particular to lead where government has not. So whether it's, it's a failure or a gap or a delay, whatever it is that the government is not doing what the people expect, they are calling on corporates to do that and they've said in surveys and they've shown in their buying patterns that they would rather support companies that share their values than just the lowest price. It's very important for consumers now.
3: Which I think brings us back to the a point of leverage, obviously, for between Australia and the U.S. for trade, in that I think generally you see, and there's plenty of stats from the Laurie Report and others, that Australians have a much greater trust in the U.S., or have a a very high degree of trust in the US. And obviously, that's a factor that can be leveraged to support the trade relationship between us.
1: Just on that, Robin Denham, the chair of Tesla, a few weeks ago, referencing the amount of minerals, critical minerals that could be bought from Australia, specifically around that ESG. So, if you think of any company that has such an important brand and reputation value attached to its market cap, I think Tesla would be right at the top. So, a case in point about the market dynamics, but also the trust and reputation for those companies.
2: Yeah, I was there in Canberra at the Minerals Council when she talked about that. And Robin, along with Rob LeBusk from Verizon, are the chair and vice chair of the New South Wales Council of Governors. So have a lot to do with both of them. And I found it surprising that there was so much press around her speech. It wasn't brand new information, but sometimes just having the right messenger and the right brand association can bring it to the fore that what she was talking about that australia really can be a powerhouse in critical minerals if we get our skates on is something people have known but having her deliver that message in that environment was the exact right way to do it so i was really happy to see that uh, visibility for the topic
1: it's incredibly interesting and i think i take your point about the right messenger at the right time can be very powerful Can we move to 5G, which you mentioned earlier, April, and obviously this maps sort of to the heart of some of the discussions from Verizon globally. MJ, you have a global role. What are you seeing around a global environment, 5G? Where are we at? I know that the US has a lot of activity in the 5G space. Australia, probably more in the private 5G space, but what are we seeing right now?
3: Well, momentous activity, massive focus. Obviously, five G is really exciting. It's not just a step up from four G. It's a whole new world of capability, and and essentially will underpin IoT and take smart manufacturing and just everything to the next level. So, what you see, though, of course, is that in order to have the five G network, you've got to have the infrastructure, and so therefore, there's a build, and so it's going to have an impact on the at least the digital divide between countries because you know some countries are going to be way out ahead and some countries will lag in developing the infrastructure that they need to support the 5G network but right now i'd say that the countries that you'd expect you know in europe and the us and obviously australia canada and whatever there's lots of activity going on to roll out the 5G networks there's lots of use cases being developed to sell the technology to the Verticals, manufacturers of the world, and retailers, etc., to show them the benefits of the network. And well, certainly we're talking about this is sort of like the you know the fourth part of the industrial revolution, which is like real time enterprise. It's, it's really going to power the next generation of being able to do smart manufacturing and it's efficient. You know, I. Actually, just looking the other day, I mean, a 5G network only uses 10% of the power of a 4G network. And when you're talking about environmental concerns and global warming, all of these factors seem to make this a really exciting development coming. It's there in some places, but obviously it's, it's going to take a while for it to be ubiquitous.
2: This has been something that AmCham's been involved with for a long time, MJ. We took a delegation to talk to, it was then Prime Minister Turnbull, about the options that Australia had in terms of installing its 5G network. And uh, his background as former communications minister led to a highly technical discussion, actually, um, for, for the level that that was at. And we've continued that discussion through the Trump administration with former Undersecretary for Economic Development, Keith Crack who talked to our members about the importance of clean networks. And if you want to be doing business with the United States, you need to be sure that there aren't any potentially compromised providers in your network and think about that from the start. So one of our big members who does business around the world put it pretty succinctly. He said, companies in Australia really need to decide if they're going to be doing business with North America. And if so, they need to use a clean network. If they're going to expand into Asia, especially China, then they would use a different provider. But he really saw a bifurcation of the 5G decisions that companies were making, where you're putting your eggs, which basket you're putting your eggs in, and then make sure that your network is compliant.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is definitely a a fundamental part of the conversation, and it comes back to trust which is where we started this conversation. Verizon obviously falls on (laughs) the clean network side and as does Australia, I think. But you're right. It's definitely a conversation that's going to, people are going to fall on one side or the other of and it's, it's pretty fractious, I think, right now
1: can i just ask that i've heard the term balkanisation of technology and while we're talking about network like 5g we're also talking about social media platforms probably lots of different ways where there's sort of i guess the bifurcation as you say april are you seeing like you just said mj that there's people are doing one or the other they're not running two networks i mean the world is in place it's yeah no nobody's going to run two networks you know this conversation about clean
3: networks and who is in your trusted supply chain has become louder more recently. And you've got companies that have already made an investment based on suppliers that may not fall on the trusted side of the conversation for some other companies. So, it means you've got some sort of sunk capital investment in networks that you can't just throw away for those companies. So, I don't think that running two networks is a thing. I mean, I think the edge of the conversation or the sort of the blur bit of the conversation becomes whether it's clean at its core. And because, of course, you've got all of your edge devices, which may come from areas that are not considered as trusted as others. So, you know, I think the issue comes down to where's the core start and finish such that it has to get the tick of clean bill of health in order for it to be a trusted, secure network.
1: Looking forward, obviously, we keep talking about this period we've been through, and in Sydney we're in lockdown <laughs> again, So, but it did sort of for a while give a jolt of energy around possibility and capability, and I know we referenced it in things like the hand sanitizer and ventilators right at the beginning, which were signals that we could do things that we probably hadn't thought about until we had to. That sense of energy and the sense of possibility, where, April, are you seeing sort of the green shoots or faster growth between some of the, the collaborations from a trade perspective between Australian companies and US? You mentioned some great examples before, like Linus Corporation, but where are the other bright spots that we should be you know, keeping an eye on and getting inspiration from?
2: I think that the innovation that's happened around technology has been just nothing short of inspiring. It used to be quite a drag if you said, oh, can we have a teleconference? You know, um, every all of us had board meetings where somebody had to call in on the space phone and you couldn't see who was talking and they got interrupted now everybody's grandmother knows how to use some form of video conferencing. And I've been at events recently where one state was locked down and a conference was going on in another state, and you'd have four people sitting at the table and the fifth speaker was just a screen down at the end and and her face was coming in from another, another location. So I think the global discussions that we've been able to have, either completely virtual or hybrid, have been really exciting and Companies like Woolies have leapt ahead five years in five months in terms of online shopping and logistics and the things that that they were hoping to do over a longer term. And now that we've done them, we're not going back. So that's been very exciting. I think that the natural follow-on from our earlier discussion around critical minerals is technology. Why do we need these critical minerals? It's for our smartphones and our laptops and all of our smart devices. And the thing that excites Australians about the United States, I find, young Australians, isn't so much the 100 years of mateship that we've had, that we fought together in every major battle, that it's thanks to the American sacrifice in the Pacific in World War II that we are a democracy and we have our freedoms. That's all very, very important, but more so to the older generation. The younger generation, the kids in college and the the early entrepreneurs in their 20s, I find are much more excited by the technology in the United States. Really, the West Coast, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, even moving into Austin, HP and Oracle and Tesla have all moved over to Texas. Florida is creating a tech hub, Boston, Denver. There are a lot of really exciting pockets of high-tech innovation in the United States, and that's what I see exciting the next generation of Australian investors and entrepreneurs and connecting us across the Pacific to create opportunities for our countries to expand and grow and for our economies to be more productive. So I think that it's part of that original conversation about critical minerals, but you know that's digging stuff out of the earth and very raw materials and technology is more about software as a service and different kinds of professional services and things that we can offer and, and do together because we're trusted allies. You know, 20 years ago, people were saying, well, that's a market, that's a market, they've got more people than this other market, so that's where we're gonna go. But all you have to do is look at the number of companies that have gone into certain markets and had their IP stolen or replicated a week after they set up shop. And they're starting to realize well, it's not just about the number of consumers in a certain market. It's about where there is IP protection, where there's rule of law. If something goes wrong, where the patent system is understandable and trustworthy. So I think that's been been a big eye opener for Australian companies as they look to where they want to expand overseas. That trust,
3: and also that's also an environment of support for the research and the development in general as well. Which again. I think that Australia sort of um, struggles a little bit on their attitude to research and development here. But going back to your point about the rule of law, et cetera, I mean, again, it is governments that set down that rule of law. So there's no doubt that Australia and the US have a transparent and lawful system, checks and balances and all that sort of stuff. But that's a delicate thing as well, to be protected. And just reading this morning about the, um, here we've got the Assistance and Access Act, that was controversially enacted in 2018, which gives powers to law enforcement here to, in theory, backdoor technology, et cetera, et cetera. And and of course, in the paper this morning, they're doing another round of consultation and it also allows the government to step in in the event of a cyber attack. And of course, most of these high-tech firms are saying, we don't think you could do anything better than we could do in those circumstances. And I mean, all of this just goes into how the balance for trusted partnership really has to be worked on and maintained by people within the industries to ensure that we're maintaining that atmosphere that makes us so comfortable with each other in terms of everything that we do.
1: I think that's a good place for final comments on that. Exactly as you say, MJ, that assistance and access, and now it's sort of touching on the critical infrastructure, the role of government and big business and who's going to have the competitive edge when it comes to black hats in terms of maintaining resilience. These are all live continuing discussions and they need to be current and up to date like we talked about that long-term history as well as the current trust and it's a tension point that I guess is ongoing so I guess we've talked about the last 24 months the next 12 months what do you both hope to see what does a a healthy and robust it's already healthy and robust but what does fantastic look like as we talk about the the trade relationship in the next 12 months
3: Yes, COVID has obviously changed the landscape a lot. And so in good ways and bad ways. I certainly have known a lot more about my colleagues in the US now and around the world. I know what they look like. I know what their dog's names are. Generally, I have had an interaction with their children. This is all a really good thing, I think. But in terms of for Australia and the US, I think that we've got this new technology, 5G, which is obviously there to underpin all the verticals that we have in both Australia and the U.S., I think that we've got a lot of shared innovation and sort of thinking to do in order to really get the maximum out of those technologies. And so the future, I think, looks really bright for us, but we have to just continue to work on, we've kind of seen how small things can really put the balance out. And, you know, that might be personalities, it might be pandemics, there's a whole lot, there might be people bringing in new laws, which seem great locally, but maybe don't look so good internationally. So I think it's just shown us that although it's such a robust relationship, even it can be subject to change just really quickly. And so we just have to really keep mindful that this is the value of what we have to preserve for how we can use it in the future.
2: That's a good point. I would add that I think the future for US-Australia looks good because of the pandemic. Previously, when American companies wanted a regional headquarters in Asia Pacific, they would look to Hong Kong or Singapore because it was really important to be a two-hour flight from everybody you needed to visit. Now, I think, now that we're using so much more technology, I think it's more important to be in the same time zone because nobody in Sydney, well, MJ, I know you do have a global role, so you're probably on call 24-7, but given the choice, You don't want to be doing your work in the middle of the night. So to the extent that we're in the same time zone as so many Asia-Pacific countries, I think that gives us an opportunity to really push for more regional headquarters to be based here in Australia. Given a choice, all American expats would love to come to Australia versus all Mm -hmm. the other choices in the region. This is a, a top destination for most Americans, whether as a a business destination or a holiday destination. And so I think we have an opportunity to really draw a lot more investment here because we have been safe through the pandemic. Our government has worked to try and minimize the harm to uh, human life as well as to the economy. The tyranny of distance has turned into a real benefit of distance, that we are an island nation, that we're able to close our borders when we need to and really control who comes in and out. So I think that it'll be a benefit for us as more meetings happen over video conference and you don't have to fly somewhere to have a meeting with somebody for an hour and then fly back. So there's a real opportunity right now for Australia after the pandemic.
1: Today on the Age of Trust podcast, we've been talking about the US and Australian trade relationship. Joining me has been April Parmalee, the CEO of AmCham and MJ Salia, who's the General Counsel at Verizon. We've covered a lot of territory. It's been a really interesting time in what's been a a long and trusted relationship between the two countries, and there'll be lots of interesting things coming up in the next 12 and 24 months, and we've covered some of them today and we'll keep a close eye and hope to check in with you both again. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: We hope you enjoyed this special Verizon Age of Trust podcast. For more, keep tuning in to Innovation Oz podcast or go to verizon.com.